if you follow God like Job, then you'll get what Job has, not sheep, but I mean like riches, and then times of storms will come, and those are the things about Job. But the problem I always carry with Job is that if, you, if you've read the story, you know what comes next, and Job, basically his whole life is like, I don't know, one of those sand timers, and it just gets tipped up, upside down, and everything falls apart. He loses his children, he loses his wealth, he loses his servants, he loses everything that if he lived in today's day and age, would be considered important. So everything that made Job who he was and everything that made Job great was lost when he lost all of his possessions and all of his children and all of his wealth. And most of the time we'll reflect upon Job's faith, Job's persistence in God to worship, to praise God in the midst of having everything that he doesn't understand or deserve happen to him. But I want to sort of talk and... I don't know. I haven't heard many people do this, so I'm sort of scared at the prospect of me doing it, but I'll try my best. So to understand this, we have to talk a little bit about Satan. And I'm going to ask before we talk about Satan not to jump the gun and think of like that red devil tribal warrior that like is fighting God in some like sword battle in heaven. I just want you to sort of come on a journey through the scriptures with me through Job and a little bit through the gospels and see what the scriptures are trying to say. So in Hebrew, Satan means the accuser or adversary, I think, is how you say it? Huh? Yeah, sweet. Um, so, <laughs> so as we continue reading through Job, we see this picture of the angels meeting with God. We don't know where. It's, I guess, heaven, because that's where you think God is. And they're all meeting around and talking. And then it says, Satan came with them. And so Satan comes up to God and God is like, hey, where have you been? And he says, I've come from roaming the earth and have noticed your servant Job. Then he continues along the line of accusing Job for his motive for worship. So the first point that needs to be made or needs to be presented is the fact that Satan isn't God's opposer or accuser, but is Job's in this situation. God isn't oppo- Satan isn't opposing God or accusing God's intentions, but is actually accusing what Job's motive for worship is. And the accuser of Job is saying that he simply worships God out of his self-motivation or interest because of what he has. He is drawing, he's drawing a connection between his piety and his prosperity. And your piety is your reason for religion, your religion itself. So Satan is basically going to God and he's saying, the only reason that Job worships you is because of everything that he has. If he didn't have everything that he has, there would be no religion or reason to worship you. So the events that follow the tests are a very hard thing for me to wrap my mind around. But they are the challenges that, it challenges the idea that the fact that prosperity isn't the reason why we follow God. And Job's whole test was to, basically say through the good and the bad, whatever happens, it's because of God and that's why we follow him. So the question the accuser, Satan, asks is actually very important and it's very valuable to reflect upon because if you look at your own life, a lot of sometimes what my regular worship to God is is because of everything I have. Like I can't imagine being in Job's position, losing everything and then being in the position of being like, no, I was like naked in my mother's womb or something and like naked I will leave. Like his crazy response like that. But it is important to ask yourself why we are religious, why we believe in God and what we have is of course a natural selection of how we praise God. Because if you have the worst week of your life, it's the hardest thing to do to be like, God, you're awesome. Like God bless you. I don't know if he needs to be blessed, but yeah, you get what I mean. And if you, so if we reflect upon that idea, then we'll come to the problem of prosperity because often 
throughout Scripture, you had these other places, and even the Israelites, what reflected a lot about God's uh, greatness would be possessions, would be wealth, would be prosperity. So if you um, go to... Uh, no, we'll wait for that. But so basically, in every sort of religion, and like the Greeks, and a lot of people why a lot of people think Christianity is stupid because it doesn't present a sort of power or goal that all the other religions do. But I remember watching this documentary, and if you've watched John Oliver, I don't know if I should recommend you to watch him, but he's a very smart and intelligent guy and presents some good points. And I was watching this documentary where they were running through these um, pastors who preached the prosperity gospel, which I, I, I won't say what I think about it because it's irrelevant, but I mean, these preachers were up there and they were showing their lifestyles. They had houses that cost over $10 million. They asked their church for planes, which that's pretty odd. Like, I don't know how you sort of... Can, you have to be a good preacher to convince your congregation to donate you a plane that costs $65 million. Like, I don't think I could convince you guys to give me 60... I don't think we have $65 million. But, so, yeah... That would be a hard thing to do. But, and their, I guess the motive of their message was saying, you know, if you tithe, if you give all this money to this church, then what will happen is God will give you double, triple, quadruple. He will give you everything you need. You just need to put that faith and that heart of, like, money into God. And, at, like, and I sort of, like, you have that initial response, you watch it, and you're like, man, that's so, that's so dumb. Like, when I was watching that 16, I was like, if you believe that, like, it's your own fault. Like, if you're silly enough to do that, then, you know, bad luck for you, I guess. But then the story, can, like, quickly followed, and it went to this 50- or 60-year-old woman who had been diagnosed with cancer, and her daughter was telling the story of... Um, her mum was watching a sermon, and I can't remember who it was from, but it doesn't matter, and she was saying, hey, don't go to the hospital um, to get the medicine that will make you sicker. Just give your tithes over to us and just trust that the faith of God will heal you in your heart. And God can absolutely do that. I've heard stories and I've like witnessed crazy things and God can absolutely do that. But this woman died and she died very slowly and in poverty. And the huge thing with wealth and comparing it to God is you have to be careful because often prosperity and wealth comes at the injustice of so many. And that's not God's heart at all because if you look at Jesus, then you have a real conflict of these pastors asking for $65 million planes and then you go to a third world country and there's like 20,000 kids dying a day. So we need to somehow come together and realize at first before we do any work, the biggest mission is to first realize there's a problem. And, and that is our main focus, is not trying to solve everything at the moment, but just addressing and highlighting the problems that we face with prosperity and consumerism, which I think this church is doing quite well for just doing quite well, I don't know. <laughs> and um, so in Scripture, we, too see, we, too see, we see two main examples of this. You have God's people coming out of Egypt, and there was a huge problem for the Israelites coming out of Egypt because when they were slaves for God in Egypt, they had something called brick quotas, which means the Pharaoh would say every single day, hey, I want this built by this deadline, and they would work overtime, didn't get paid, but... Um, would build crazy amounts of stuff, and this Pharaoh had it all. And for the Israelites, it was a testament to the fact that the Pharaoh was a god because they witnessed tangibly with their eyes all this crazy stuff that was being built. And uh, that's, 
the problem that they really struggled with because when they came out of Egypt and God was like wandering them through the desert, they were sort of like, what now, God? Like every day we saw miracles being built physically and now we've come here and we're like seeing nothing. So it was a huge problem for the Israelites because their idea of God's testament of divinity was the fact of like material wealth, like beautiful things being built. And that's why the implementation of um, the 10th commandment, do not cover, and the Sabbath was so important for the Israelites' way of life because the Sabbath was actually a resistance to the culture of more, the desire of more and more because the Sabbath was basically a day where you just rest. And like, I sort of thought that was cool, you know, just be like, no, Tara, I can't help you do the busy bee because it's the Sabbath, you know, you just like sit. But like, it's actually the coolest thing in the world. I read this book by um, Walter Brueggemann and it's basically... He's saying that um, on this one day a week, the, every person, every Israelite, every God's people could not work at all. They could not devote any of their mind or their time to getting money or resources to survive. And in Matthew 6.26, Jesus um, like, uh, confirms this and he says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus confirms the Sabbath principle of trusting him over consumerism because the worry would be that, hey, if we're not working on this day, we're not getting more and more. But the Sabbath not only didn't provide for them, but it provided for so many other people who were called the aliens. So if you didn't have a lot of, like if you had nothing and you were foreign to the country, the Sabbath was actually a principle to also help the people who had nothing. So it was a perfect balance of the rich not becoming rich, but the poor also coming into the fold and having enough to survive and I can definitely say if you can read that book do it because it's it's changed like so much of my life but then we come to God's people under the Roman Empire and Caesar was the God the modern God at this time not to the Israelites but to everyone else in the world and he had military force wealth like beautiful shrines I watch tv shows it looks pretty cool and everything like that gives testament to this God and the Israelites the, the problem for them was they wanted exactly what the Romans had, but them in the power instead. And the problem with that is that's not who God is. And that's what the image of God is, a God who gives power, who gives wealth, who gives everything like that. And, if you've, and as Rene Girard describes it, that would be an act of Satan casting out Satan. And if you go to Mark 3:23 to 26, I don't know if we'll go up there, but I'll read it. It says, In order to prevent the destruction of his kingdom... Wait. Oh, no. Sorry. Um, okay. Yeah, I'll read it from here. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Now, I've been reading this completely wrong. I will, like, say that. And when I read this, my mind was, like, destroyed. But there's a quote from um, the book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, and it says, like, it says this, In order to prevent the destruction of his kingdom, Satan makes out of his disorder himself. At its highest heat, a means of expelling himself. This verse can be translated to disorder expelling disorder. 
So the crazy thing about Satan and basically the principle Rene Girard presents is the fact that what makes Satan the king, the prince of darkness is the fact that he can use violence to cast out violence and that's what makes him who he is. See, and if we go around the world today, we, that sort of scares me because that's a very, like, it's a common thing. Like, the Paris attacks, not long ago, I can't remember how long ago it was now, but I remember reading news articles like, yes, let's attack back, let's bomb their families, like, we need to win this. And he goes through how that's, we're accomplishing Satan's kingdom for him because the means of death to fixed death is exactly what Satan wants. It's exactly the world he's trying to create. And the problem then becomes with us, it's on a much smaller scale as well. It's if someone's gossiping about you, do you go gossip about someone else? That's a means of evil creating evil. It doesn't fix anything. But the goal is to reign in the kingdom of God in the acts of Jesus gives us like, which are incredibly hard to do. And that stops the cycle of maliciousness. That stops the hatred. That stops Satan dividing on himself. And eventually, like the last verse comes, if we can put 26, verse 26 of that up again. Four, no, no, three, okay, that's, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. And that's the good news that we rejoice in, that the hatred that fuels hatred, the death that fuels death is coming to an end. Probably not in our lifetime. That's a very sad thing to say. But we can, the hope of Christianity is that we get to be a part of a kingdom that is here now, that is going to take place over forever and one day will reign here in its fullness. And that makes me really excited to be a part of that. Um, and oh, where am I now? And so that's why when the Israelites are saying, hey, we are looking for a God that's going to kill Caesar, that's going to give us the military power and all this. That's why when Jesus rocks up on the scene, if you like read it in their day, it's insanity. It's actually crazy. Like the verse where it says to Gentiles and to Jews, it's foolish is not messing around. Like for a guy from Nazareth to rock up on the scene who's completely living in poverty, has no means of like, he's not in a family that gets to speak out. They, and he's like, I am he. They would have been like, are you serious? Like, it would have been actual devastation for them. Like they, it would have been very hard to wrap their minds around. And he lives out his ministry. He talks of a kingdom that will bring peace, freedom, and equality. And that threatens so much of wealth, prosperity, and power. And the biggest people who are worried about is the Romans and also the church, which is something we have to reflect upon so carefully and so like tread lightly because the, if we go to John 11... Yeah, can we get John 11 up and I'll just read it from there because I hate looking through paper. So this is just after Lazarus had died. So, and we need to keep that in mind. It says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is the man performing many signs... If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. All right, so this is why this is important because these people at the Sanhedrin meeting together 
hate each other. Like, I don't know what sort of, just imagine groups that hate each other in your mind and them getting together, they rally together and say, all right, we need to sort this guy out. He's causing some serious problems. And why this is after Lazarus's story, I think is important because I think this is the moment they all realize that Jesus is the son of God. I think this is the moment they realize that who he proclaims is complete truth. And that's what scares them because him talking about a kingdom where it's good news for the poor, good news for the oppressed, they're like, crap, we've done that. And so they're saying, okay, um, what you would normally do is you would scapegoat this person, the whole town would hate on this person and then they would die. And then usually that's how God would be made in the past 2000, like 2,000 years ago, that when that person died, order would be restored, happiness would be restored, and usually everything would go back to the way it was, but they would recognize that person as a God. So the problem that we know with Jesus is that when he was sentenced to that cross, when he was hanging on there and got scapegoated and killed and like slaughtered for us, it was a problem for them because he didn't stay dead. Three days later, as we know, the triumph that comes for us is that God rose from the grave. And the reason that is called victim is victor is because and these narratives were so common back in the day to have stories about them killing people to like restore the town's order. But no story ever is told from the side of the victim. No story has ever come from the side of them getting killed unfairly but then raising up from the dead and creating the sort of order and kingdom that Jesus was trying to create. So the important thing for Christianity is to remember that death, brokenness is a big part of everything we've done. If you look at the first church, like I'm overwhelmed by the brothers and sisters that have come before us, the sacrifices they've made and that we need to make for this kingdom to be at hand. So what do I want to get So now the challenge that we're faced with and that's considered foolish to all those who don't understand it is the fact that our piety, our religion is associated with a man who really seemingly died without any control. It sort of, it seems, but if you look at it, it's incomplete control. But our God, our King isn't one of, with a crown of jewels and gold, but a crown of thorns on his head. He didn't sit upon a throne with a great voice speaking to all the nations, but was hung upon a cross and died as a man as a man dies so when we think of our piety in our religion it's not wealth it's not consumerism that we associate with but we assume with nothing when jesus says give everything away for the sake of the kingdom like a beautiful story is the story of the rich disciple that jesus loved but he asked him at last he's like i've done everything you've said but now give away everything you have and he couldn't do it and we i think just walk over that story sometimes because if some poor guy was standing outside that was probably not this is not from the same country as us saying give everything you have away follow me i'd be like you're a whack job mate like what are you talking about so the problem is would you recognize jesus if he was just standing in the street proclaiming this sort of news and it's important to us because in all seriousness it worries me that like if Jesus wasn't there in a flowing whiteness of silk, I wouldn't recognize who he was because he's proclaiming something that I'd be like, you are like insane, like please lock you up. But in truthfulness, 
it's only insane because we're in the position that we need to worry about because I have stuff to lose. I have a house that I live in that people don't have. I have possessions that people don't have. And for some reason, when I, like, when my phone broke, I got really angry for some reason. And I don't even know why. It's just a phone, like, something that doesn't matter. But, like, it just showed me in that moment how much that stuff seems to have a hold of us. So I want us to come in a moment where we sort of reflect upon the nature of God, a God that wasn't a king like by the standards of this world, but of a kingdom that we have not yet seen. We get to experience and will come one day in its fullness, but for now, we need to reflect and come together so much because we can only do this together. We can only encourage each other to be the people that we know we can be. We can be the people that love our enemies, but we have to do that together because it costs a lot of strength, it costs a lot of energy, and we have the aid of the Spirit to help us, of course, but the biggest part of Christianity is its unity. The, I, was, I had a story read to me from Neil Chisholm, who's one of my Bible college lecturers, and it was, I think it was Lydia, it was of this Roman um, person after Jesus had died, and they were talking about the power of communion, that she just couldn't wrap her mind around the fact that there would be hundreds of people in one small room no one in charge, no one judging each other, but they would just share a meal and just enjoy each other's company, have love, unity, peace. And then when she went to a Roman Empire, there would be the rich segregated from the poor, there would be oppression and all this, and she just didn't know how to wrap her mind around a God that didn't make sense. And sometimes it really doesn't make sense to me. Like some mornings I wake up and I'm like, what am I doing? But once you see it, you can't ever let go. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus, the fact that for some reason you realize how hard it is, but you just can't turn away. So can I get the band up? And I have one more thing to read. Alrighty, I'll start reading. If you could play keys, Katie, that would probably help me sound better. <laughs> um, John 6, the start of it. Um, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the, to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, I think, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on, a, on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, What shall we buy bread well where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down there was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
Now, this story has always made me wonder how everyone got food. And I, I sort of read something, and I'm going to just... I'm, I have hope that it's the right idea because it sounds like something Jesus would do. That when they're talking about, you know, how are we going to feed all these people, it would be a natural inclination even for us to be like, how are we going to get food for everyone? But like, we don't have enough money. Like, there's no way we can feed everyone. But Jesus, in his mind, already knew what he was going to do. There was this small boy who had five loaves of bread and two small fish, which is way too much for one boy to eat. So I think what happened and why they tried to make Jesus king was because everyone in the place that had too much noticed that there was people with nothing. And I think in that moment, something clicked in their mind and they didn't just see that, but they wanted to give. They wanted everyone to come apart and eat together. And when this happened, they realized that this king, this King Jesus could bring order and peace and everything that they believed God could do. So I think if we hold true to that story, we have hope in a world that we don't always have to get a very good job to give money away, but we all just need to give what we don't like. We have to give so we all have something. We can't live in a world where I have more than you and you have more than me because that means someone is without. And sometimes we have the response of, it's not my responsibility, like, I got born here, I didn't really have a choice. And you didn't, but we have to, we have to care about the people in the third nations and I love missions projects and I often wonder how I would go but this world is going to be transformed by the kingdom that is coming that is here right now and we need to band together and realize it's going to be harder than what we think in our minds is possible but that's exactly why we have the spirit of God to do things that we once thought were impossible but now are completely possible through the power of Christ and the mission of the cross. So if we could all stand and the band starts to play at the cross and if we could close our eyes, I'll just pray and then we can, I don't know, Tara will probably say something to take over, but I don't know. Um, yeah, Jesus, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that even though you were God and that you were mighty, that you came down as a man who seemed like a peasant to many but was the mightiest of kings. And we thank you so much, God, that you surrendered your life upon that cross that we may experience your kingdom, that we may be a part of unity with you. We pray that the catchphrase, Jesus loves us, would be our embrace, that our brothers and sisters, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, we will love just as much as we love ourselves, God. We pray that we'll be transformed daily by what you did on the cross and by your spirit and that your kingdom will become the most important things in our lives. We pray, God, that you'd teach us continually and you'd help us follow you in your ways. And we thank you so much again for everything that you did at the cross. You can take away, guys.